0: Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now, on to the podcast. Over and out. All right, everybody. How's it going? I hope everyone's doing well. I'm glad to be back on the stream this week. I had a very busy week because this was the week that I opened enrollment for my latest kind of serious attempt at doing a proper online course. Uh, This one with Nina Power, the British philosopher and a friend of mine. And uh, the course is on uh, the French philosopher, George Bataille. We've been preparing this for a very long time and I've been very excited to launch it. And finally, just this Wednesday, we opened enrollment and it was awesome. We have almost 50 people enrolled at this point. And, uh, you know, not to brag or anything, but frankly, I actually really think this is a bit of a milestone in the contemporary history of intellectual life in in some way, because, I mean, I'll do a kind of financial report later and show you all the results, but basically, the interest in it has been great. And I think with 50 people enrolled, uh, both in terms of the number of people participating, just in the sheer amount of kind of cultural energy in this course. And in terms of gross revenue, this is a real milestone because basically Nina and I are both now individually from this one course we're doing, we are making more than the average adjunct professor would make from a whole course. And that's a real turning point. I don't think anyone else has ever been able to pull this off at this scale. Uh, Obviously, there are lots of people doing different types of online courses and they are often making huge sums of money, but there's no you know phd serious academic researchers who are doing uh genuinely disinterested kind of truth for truth's sake uh intellectual online courses uh and having this level of success as far as i know i haven't i haven't met anyone who's who's doing that so uh you know i think for young people who are aspiring to pursue an intellectual life the uh the the options that are now presented are uh it's a much wider palette of options than than it used to be and i think frankly Uh, people like myself are proving that you're you actually have better prospects going outside of the system you know if if your goal is to do a kind of long-term intellectual life and you want to do research and teaching as your main act in life as your main vocation uh, it's increasingly looking like doing an an independent kind of internet project is probably going to give you a higher expected value in the long run if you average out the probabilities of success and the actual earning power of doing various intellectual projects. I think what I'm proving is that you can actually do quite well for yourself if you just go fully independent and uh, yeah, you don't compromise and you just do exactly what you want to do and you build your own systems. So yeah, I believe that this recent course I'm doing with Nina, the results have been good enough so far that I I actually am willing to go out on a limb and say that I I think uh, within a few years, people will point back to this online course I'm doing with Nina as a kind of turning point. As a real, as a real, uh, pivotal moment because, I mean, frankly, we're just proving that it can be done. I don't, no one's ever really proven that this can be done at this scale, and I think there are going to be a lot of adjunct professors, a lot of marginal academics, and also a lot of grad students right now who are pr- trying to pursue academic careers within the academic within the academic system, and they're going to be looking at us and they're going to be like, "Holy shit! If that's possible, I'm going to try that instead," uh, because the academic grind is just increasingly shitty for pretty much everyone involved for the most part. Anyway, that's what I've been up to this week. That's uh, just a little update on my projects. Uh, But I'm back here tonight on the, on the live stream, on the live podcast, the other live podcast, the probably, I think arguably the best podcast in on the internet. If you're interested in, you know, the stuff I'm interested in, I guess that's kind of tautological, but be that as it may, I got our guest is actually waiting in the wings. So I don't want to keep him waiting too long. He showed up very promptly on time. Uh, We're going to be talking with uh, an interesting man named Travis Corcoran. Uh, I I think he has quite a a nice little following on on Twitter and elsewhere. So some of you probably already know about Travis. I'm sure many of you don't. And just to give him a little bit of uh, introduction before I uh, bring him into the stream. He recently came on my radar through, I think, through through, uh, my friend Jeremy, who is the founder of this decentralized YouTube alternative called Library. And, uh, I'm pretty sure if I recall correctly, Jeremy was the one who said, Hey, Justin, you should talk with Travis, uh, also known on Twitter as Morlock P. Uh, and the one thing that jumped out at me that made me want to talk with him straight away was that he recently launched a Kickstarter to, for one of his, uh, book projects that he's launching. And this Kickstarter just absolutely crushed it. I think he asked for, you know, something in the low thousands, a few thousand dollars and, uh, ended up getting, he's already at like 55,000, something like that. And it's still increasing with many days left. So as as uh, those of you who have been following my podcast for a while know, one of the common themes I'm very interested in and I talk a lot about is just different experiments on the kind of independent intellectual and publishing fronts. This is a common recurring theme of the people I talk with and, and the ideas that I explore personally, just these new economies that are emerging for creative, independent intellectuals or creators to basically break all of the rules and do whatever they want in their own way. And oftentimes be more successful than they would have otherwise. So uh, this has become a focus of, of the podcast and and the other life project. And uh, so once I saw this, I was like, oh, I got to talk to this guy. And then I learned he's also, I believe he's been active in the Urbit community, uh, which is also something a lot of people in my audience are interested in. And, uh, and finally, I didn't even know this until after the fact, uh, after we, we booked the, the live stream, but I was kind of doing some research on him. And uh, Travis has also, uh, I guess, been notorious at different moments for saying rather provocative things. Uh, we can get into it a little bit if we want to. Uh, but the purpose of this is uh, of this particular talk is actually because I'm more interested in the, uh, the, the book launch, the Kickstarter that he's done very successfully. I want to learn, you know, kind of the story behind that, how he did that and, uh, a little bit of the backstory and context for that. Uh, but also an interesting topic is the book that he is launching on Kickstarter. It's all about how to go from being a kind of urban city dweller to doing the whole homestead thing. And uh, I'm very interested in his take on this because he's done this himself. Uh, he lives roughly in the, in the New Hampshire area on a, on a homestead and uh, yeah, he went from a kind of software, kind of typical urban uh, software engineering type of person to a, you know, rural New Hampshire homesteader. And now he's trying to, he's, he is writing a book about this. Uh, and that was the book that he launched on the Kickstarter. So basically, uh, Many, many themes that we actually address frequently on this podcast, the independent publishing aspect, something we talk about a lot on this podcast, the I know a lot of people who specifically who work in tech and are trying to kind of find some sort of alternative lifestyle that often has in their own mind, some sort of uh, aspect to it that that involves a, a different type of arrangement, often outside of the city. So that I think is going to be very interesting to a lot of people who listen to this podcast or watch this podcast on YouTube. Uh, so the whole kind of alternative lifestyle d- design and especially the kind of anti-urban uh, kind of perspective, uh, I, I know a lot of you out there are very interested in that. We're going to be covering that. And, um, and, and, and also I, I didn't even know this, but apparently the kind of radical free speech dimension might also come into play here because the way that I read Travis and we'll get to learn much more about how he sees things in just a minute, but, uh, looking over his kind of whole life story and, and all the things he's done. Um uh, You know these things are these different themes are not random themes. I think they 're actually quite intertwined because if you are the type of person that has a penchant for saying whatever you really think, even if it sounds fucking crazy or or terrible or uh completely unacceptable to other people, if that's just the type of person you are, then I think you learn early in life to start uh making preparations and to start making strategies for how you 're going to be able to you know sustain your life and and uh be independent because you you, kind, you can kind of always feel that uh, your your institutional life is is always uh, vulnerable, and so yeah, I think that that uh, we'll have so much to talk about with Travis uh, on all of these fronts, which I think many of you are very interested in. so I think uh, without further ado, I think that 's enough of an introduction. Uh, Travis has been waiting in the wings very patiently for ooh seven minutes now, sorry, I spoke a, a little too long uh, let's uh, let 's bring Travis in, and uh, this should be fun. All right, Travis, you are now on the stream. Can you hear me? Okay. I can
1: hear you. Can you hear me?
0: Yes, I can. It looks like there's a little bit of a lag, but you know, it's okay. all good.
1: Cool. This will um, go to the
0: podcast later, so uh, cool. they won't know if the if the video and the audio are a little off. How are you doing today, Travis? I'm doing great. And uh, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I can't complain. So first of all, I want to say huge congratulations on your amazingly successful Kickstarter campaign. Oh, thank and, you. By the uh, way, folks, for people listening. There is a link in the description below for anyone who wants to go check that out. Uh, Travis, you absolutely crushed it. I'm My first question for you is just, were you expecting to have that amount of success or was that truly a surprise to you?
1: Uh, you know, can I say both? Um, so on the one hand, uh, my first Kickstarter for some novels that I wrote a couple of years ago did $18,000 and I was very happy with that. And if you look at the statistics for Kickstarter publishing projects, uh, to, you know, successfully hit your target and then, you know, uh, hit the financial level that was sort of in the top 3% or so. So I was very happy with that. And, um, Uh, When this one came along, certainly bare minimum, I wanted to hit the exact same thing. Um, And then in the back of my head, you know, I accelerated this project, the book is 90% written, but I assumed, you know, I'd do a couple of revisions and I, you know, at my own good time, get it out in three or four years. Um, And then given the absolute insanity of 2020 uh, with, you know, pandemic and riots and successor ideology uh, and the stock market, you know, down and then up and then, you know, God knows where tomorrow, um, I realized, um, you know, strike while the iron is hot. And so uh, I, you know, rushed and got the Kickstarter live in about two or three weeks. Um, and uh, Bern Hobart, who a lot of your audience probably overlaps with, um, had a tweet a day or so ago. Talking about, you know, you'll sometimes set these goals for yourself and then, you know, uh, exceed your goals. And the trick is to immediately update your priors and you know take that as your base case. So uh when the Kickstarter launched, uh my goal was 18k. And in the back of my mind, I had, you know, but uh, something like three times that. If I hit 46, that was just a number that popped up, that would be success. Uh and then I hit 46 and I looked at the number. And, you know, it's only 50k. Geez, this is failing again, uh yet another project not going where it should go. Um, so uh, but anyway, uh, you know, if, if I pull back from that sort of uh melancholic uh irish uh attitude towards things yes it's it's a great number, and I'm very happy with it
0: right on. do you think that there are any particular
1: things you did in the launch strategy that were particularly effective and clever that you want to share with us sure um so one thing is uh back before I moved to the homestead about uh seven years ago, um I ran some small tech startups um on my own and uh I'm, you know, a classic engineer, not a salesperson. So I had to force myself during those 14 years to read lots of sales and marketing books. And I never approached it with any enthusiasm. Uh, I approached it with reluctance. But despite that, I managed to learn a few things. And um, one of the things, you know, the classic thing of uh, sell the sizzle, not the steak. And the first time I heard that phrase, I thought that's terrible. It's deceptive. You know, you're trying to sell me on, you know, something other than the true product. But what I think that really gets to is sort of um, product audience uh, or product market fit. You know, what is it that people are really interested in? And if I'm selling a shovel, uh, very few people are interested in a shovel. A shovel, They're interested in uh, planting an orchard or putting in a pond for their kids to play in or, you know, something like that. So with the Kickstarter, I tried to, you know, th- there's a thousand ways I could have focused this. I could have talked about um, prepping, Uh, I could have talked about farming, I could have talked about, you know, uh, an ideological approach. Um, But, uh, you know, looking at sort of the events of the day, I thought, you know, the the basket of attributes that I want to talk about is uh, establishing a life that feels more authentic and is a little bit uh, distant from the insanity and the high variance that we're seeing in the cities. So I think that that uh, marketing technique worked. And I think that uh, a pretty good Kickstarter video, which was done by my uh, brother, who is a wizard that uh, worked. Um, And so, yeah. uh, Right. A lot of it yeah
0: and did you did I guess you already had something of an audience before then uh, because I know that you've been publishing uh, fiction books primarily right. for for some time, mm-hmm. and you've been so you've been active on the internet uh, publishing your own work. How yeah. do you give us a sense of um, what does your kind of personal platform look like before this launch? like sure. what kind of systems do you have
1: uh, to kind right. of man-
0: manage and build your audience?
1: Um, that's a fine question. And, uh, writing is sort of, uh, I I don't even want to call it a secondary career because that implies it's a career. It's sort of a hobby and it's on my bucket list. Um, so there are people who approach this a lot more seriously than I do. And they've got the complete list. They've got, you know, their Patreon, they've got their uh, medium essays and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And that's wonderful. And kudos to those people who are really crushing it with the sort of complete panoply of tools. Um, and I, I think you're certainly in that set. Um, You know, my audience has been organic. Uh, You you started out saying you've been on the Internet. I'm like, oh, I've been on the Internet since, you know, 1989 or so, you know, and going way back to the cypherpunks mailing list in the early 90s. Um, And, uh, you know, I had a blog that was a little bit popular in the early days of blogs. Uh, It was sort of instapundent adjacent. um, And I've got an acquaintance online. uh, And, you know, he's an adult. He's an engineer. He owns a house. Uh, and he mentioned passing, oh, yeah, a lot of my politics came from middle school uh, when I was reading your blog. And my God, that'll make you feel old. <laughs> um, so uh, I would say that my audience is not sort of professionally managed by me for the purposes of, you know, a, a platform and a brand. Um, it's sort of incidentally done. And um, the blog uh, I shut down around 2011 and you hinted in the uh, prequel as to the events about that. And perhaps we'll talk about that later. We'll see. Um, So uh, since I stopped blogging, um, Twitter has mostly been my uh, outlet for getting myself in trouble and and or amassing an audience.
0: Right on. Okay. So other than Twitter, you don't do any particular operations to kind of grow or maintain or nurture an audience?
1: I've got a website, morelockpublishing.com, which uh, I I should spend some time on. I think I put a post up there every six months or so. Uh, But no, my audience, such as it is, is just Twitter. And I've got something like 9,000 followers now. Uh, So that's not bad for sort of accidental, you know, crap posting and uh, getting people to follow me.
0: Well, this this will probably be delightful for uh, people who are maybe thinking about trying to launch something on Kickstarter, but maybe fear that they need to have some kind of big platform and mm-hmm. system built up to be able to do that successfully. Uh, it sounds like in your case, uh, when you launched the Kickstarter, all you really did was what shared to Twitter and tell friends what? and people interested. And and that was all it took for. that's all I so I took, Yeah. So yeah. do you think, do you have any read on kind of the, did it have some kind of viral dynamics? Do you, did you have any read on how the Kickstarter trickled through different communities? Where did it get the most right. traction and
1: how and why? um you know i would love to have a really meaty satisfying answer like you know the trick is to post in this facebook group and from there it goes there 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 um and uh the actual answer is that i had an audience of long standing you know some people going back 10 15 20 years um and a pretty highly engaged core group um and then having had the first kickstarter um and having these books that are now live on amazon and have been live for several years and in the, uh, you know, uh, after there, it says, you know, for more updates, follow my blog, follow my Twitter account. And so I think that grew uh, my Twitter account to a decent degree. And um, there was the essay uh, 10 years or so ago talking about true fans. And if you've got 100 people or 1,000 people who are willing to do a certain amount. Um, and I think that's, uh, some of what I've got going for me, um, that, you know, I've got that base of true fans and then hopping back to marketing for a minute, there is the concept of framing. And so if I'm trying to sell you a house, um, you know, and you tell me that your price uh, bracket is 300,000, but as a realtor, I think, you know, actually, I bet 390 might work for you. I bet you could get approved. I will probably, you know, first show you a couple of mobile homes that are overpriced. Then I will take you uh, after that to, you know, a house that's 395 or 410 and let you, you know, without me saying anything, let you say, oh gosh, these are my choices. Stretch a little bit. or get getting something I really don't want. Um, And after having shown you the 395 or 430, suddenly the 380 that I'm trying to sell you looks pretty reasonable. It's cheaper than the high end. So one important lesson uh, in marketing is to frame things, and you can often uh, create products that you don't even expect anyone to purchase. They exist uh, just to be expensive and just to look a little bit outrageous. And on my first Kickstarter, um, I I did something. Um, I I uh, had hardcovers for $100. Uh, this is a pair of hardcovers because there were two novels. I had limited edition hardcovers, um, which are to some degree a manufactured uh, scarcity, where I declare that I will only have 10 of these. They'll have a slightly different cover, um, and I'll sign them and number them. Um, and that was 250 And then I wanted to make, you know, 250 is a lot of money. And, and thank you very much to anyone who gave me $250. But I want people to be able to defend that price point to themselves. So I create you know, something higher yet, the uh, extreme limited edition $1,000 edition. And I'm not going to sell any of these. And it's limited to only three. Um, and then suddenly 250 looks plausible. And so that edition of 10 sold out. And I actually ended up selling one of the uh, $1,000 things. So I repeated these price points in this Kickstarter. Um, and... The $3,000 edition sold out in the first 60 seconds, as did the 10 $250 editions. Um, So uh, I I guess anyone who's interested in this and thinking about their own brand, part of the answer is, you know, every overnight success uh, is actually, you know, the tail end of hard work. So what you're looking at in my Kickstarter that's doing well is thousands of people who've been slowly following me for literally 10 or 15 or 20 years. Uh, So, you know, get started generating content and being interesting and delivering value to people. Um, And uh, the other part is, you know, read marketing books um, and marketing isn't about lying to your audience. It isn't about selling fluff. It's about sort of seeing what they really want and uh, taking what you're capable of delivering and orienting it a bit you know and in your particular case Justin uh with your skills there's a lot of stuff you could do you could you know write a book you could teach your courses you could decide that you're going to try to write essays and submit them to national magazines um and to choose one the courses that you're doing you know that's not being false that that's just saying you know uh, hey with the skill set i have how can i deliver value to my audience and so that's an uh an important thing to think about. I think engineers all too often, and, you know, looking back at some of my failed startups, I looked at what it was I wanted to do and then charged forward with that without thinking, you know, perhaps by steering the ship five degrees to the right, I can actually hit the port instead of hitting the rocks. And that's still true to myself as sailing a ship and going in this direction. Um, so I, at this point, I forget what the uh, original question was, so I've probably rambled a fair bit.
0: Yeah, no, no, no. That's all very good, though. And I think I think there are a lot of people in my audience who are engineers in one way or another, and they have that kind of background, they have that kind of career and that kind of mind. And yet, for many reasons, they are often quite unsatisfied with their jobs, whether that be in Silicon Valley or whatever, in part because of some of the 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 kind of political environment at the moment, I think is very tense for, for a mm-hmm. lot of people who want to think honestly and freely. And a lot of I've talked with a lot of people like that who are in one way or another kind of planning some sort of scheme where they cash out and they do something like, you know, live on a farm or something like this Mm -hmm. or some sort of other creative lifestyle design. So I would say, you know, probably half of our conversation will be about we'll talk about the homesteading stuff. I'd love to pick your brain about how people should do that and, and, and what you've learned, especially for a kind of uh, people with these this kind of engineering or professional background. Uh, but the other half that I think my audience will be equally interested in is to also learn a little bit about your, your publishing experiences. Uh, so you've been doing self-publishing
1: for a while. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, At this point, I've published two books. Um, I published Powers of the Earth in 2018, and uh, I I presume I'm allowed to brag a bit. So that went on to win the Prometheus Award for Best Science Fiction Novel. Um, And then I published the sequel a year later, and that won the Prometheus Award again. So I was very happy to be the the first person to ever win two years back to back. Um, And this pair of books, the first one is tentatively entitled Escape the City, and the second one is tentatively entitled, A Human Being Should Be Able To Butcher A Hog, which is an excerpt from a Robert Heinlein quote. Um, there is the uh, trope, you can find it at TV Tropes or in Wikipedia, of the competent man. And um, reading Heinlein very early in life, I think I read uh, his juvenile, The Red Planet, in first grade and then went on to read everything else by him. Um, Heinlein has this quote of the competent man. And, you know, a lot of his fiction is a guy has dropped into uh, a battle or a, um, a planet that's you know undeveloped and he rises to the occasion and manages to do what needs to be done. And, uh, you know, that was formative uh, when I was young and I've sort of very much oriented my life um, over the last, you know, I guess I, I'm turning 49 next week. So uh, several decades. Um, sort of inspired by that Heinlein quote and inspired by the Foxfire books, uh, which were sort of a um, artifact of the first back to the land movement back in the 70s. So uh, yeah, so So, this is, you know, it's not that I've got a lot of self-publishing behind me, but I've got two books behind me and now these next two are coming out later this year.
0: Right, and you've done very well in in the ways that you cited. And also I was going through your books and a lot of Amazon reviews, very positive reviews. So take us back to the beginning of that when you first started uh, to write and, to and to publish from, from an independent publishing perspective, what, what did you learn early on in that experience that helped you be successful? Cause a lot of people are yeah. listening to this and they're thinking, oh, I'd love to write my first, you know, independently published science fiction book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have no idea how, how to even get my first 10 readers, let alone win an award. So right. any, any insights or tips
1: there? Um, Gosh, there is a uh, a marketing guy um, who's written several books. Um, it might be Seth Godin. It might not be. And um, his books were very frustrating for me back when I was trying to run my firm because he was basically saying there are no tricks. Just be insanely excellent at what you do. Um, and you know, one wants there to be a trick. And, uh, you know, I I think, though, that I did take that approach with my novels um, because I had the leisure of working on them for as long as I wanted. I didn't need to pay the mortgage. Um, You know, I had a day job. So with my novels, uh, I started on January 1st, 2011. And over the course of the year, I wrote the first draft. And then towards the end of the year, I read it and it was terrible. And so January 1st, 2012, I started over and rewrote them. And it was still terrible. And I did this about once a year. um, And I think that there were six or so complete drafts. And by the time it was done, it had grown from a 600-page single novel into about 1,300 pages spread across two novels. and you know, sort of, my standard was these weren't just uh, any novels. This was a particular story that I had wanted to tell with certain themes uh, about politics and economics um, and sort of emergent phenomena and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, I had wanted to tell for twenty or thirty years. So to do an acceptable job and to cash in and get a you know a check uh, would be sort of, um, degrading, uh, a particular opportunity. And so that's why I did an obsessive, uh, level of work on this. And there's a saying in author, uh, circles that you need to write a million words and throw them away. And now you've actually taught yourself the skill of writing. And I realized that by the time I had written this book six times over, I had in fact written a million words. And at that point, you know, it was acceptably decent. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, did the Kickstarter route with it. And I had also been amassing a list of people that I was hoping to get recommendations or blurbs or endorsements from and, uh, sent it to a bunch of them. And I'll pause for a second and say that in the back of my mind, um, I had been aware of the Prometheus award, which is an award for the best libertarian science fiction and thought, gosh, it would be quite a coup to win that someday. And so I sort of set that as a goal to make it so good that it met my standards and it met those standards. And, um, I knew peripherally uh, Eric S. Raymond from the open source area, um, and uh, I think I'd known him a little bit back in the Usenet days in the 1990s. So I tracked down his email and sent him a copy of the book, merely looking for a blurb. Uh, now, it turned out that I, I didn't realize at the time that ESR was one of the judges of the Prometheus uh, Committee. Um So I I sent it to Eric and he said, "Okay, I got it. You know, I'll see if I have time. And a month went by and two went by and three went by. And at some point in there, I pinged him and he said, you know, I haven't finished book two yet. Um, So I I got nervous and just kept going forward with final preparations for lunch. And not too long before lunch, uh, he got back to me. And uh, let's see, I'll actually, again, if you'll indulge me for a second. uh, Sure. So my uh, novels had been inspired by uh, the Heinlein novel, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. And I read this like an obsessive, like 30 times when I was a teen, uh, maybe more. And Eric S. Raymond read the books and said, you've achieved something I've been hoping for decades someone would pull off. A book that is at once an affectionate tribute to and criticism response to The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. The Aristillus books are very strong. So your original question was sort of, you know, how did I go and get... Uh, good reviews and good awards and such. And uh, I I think the answer was, it was a thing that I cared about uh, obsessively and insanely and to a irrational degree where the uh, dollars per hour that I could ever conceivably get out would not make any sense. Um, And that level of emotional investment was the secret for me. I don't know if that's the secret for everyone, um, but that's how I did it.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm also hearing two things here, probably. One is it might seem like nothing but i think it is worth reflecting on you started by saying that you had this goal of mm-hmm. being able to produce something that reaches a certain objective standard as as indexed by that award the mm-hmm. prometheus award and so that's easy to kind of skip over but i think it's actually worth pausing on because to simply have something in your mind as as an image of what you aspire to that's that that in itself is is a little trick uh because it, at least you have something to kind of pin your hopes to something, something to kind of drive your ambitions, but also some kind of benchmark that you can compare yourself to, you know? So that's one thing I would reflect on that, that, that might've been, I mean, it's probably not coincidental that you started off with that as a goal, as a kind of structuring goal. And that ended up being the award that you won. So, so that's something I think people should note perhaps. And the other thing is, it does seem like in your case, the success you had, did have something to do with a little bit of social networking strategy, uh, even if it wasn't super conscious on your part. The simple fact of, you know, making a list of uh, people you admire who kind of represent uh, some type of gatekeeper or just a judge that you respect, uh, Mm -hmm. someone someone whose opinion and judgment you respect, building that list and also keeping that in mind as a goal uh, of, of the people you're going to send this manuscript to that, again, you know, shouldn't be totally glossed over. That's a bit of a tactic. That's a bit of a of, of a little, of a little thing that people might keep in mind. So that's all helpful, I think.
1: Yeah. I strongly agree.
0: Yeah. And okay. So you, as I understand it, you currently still, you always have uh, had software engineering as your, as your vocation. That's That's been, that's been how you pay the bills through through Mm -hmm. most of your adult life. And so it was, it was some time ago that you started doing the independent publishing. You had some mm-hmm. success with that, but that's never been a moneymaker for you. That's a passion of yours that you're, uh, you know, invested in, but not really a, a moneymaker. And so at what point did you start thinking about leaving the city and doing a, a homesteading experiment? Uh,
1: great question. Um, so I was in Boy Scouts when I was, I, I forget what the starting ages, 11, 12, 13, and, uh, being sort of a hyper INTJ Spurg, you know, uh, stereotypical smart kid nerd um the first thing i did whenever i got interested in anything was you know go to the library and read every single book in the small town library on the topic so getting interested in camping uh i went to the uh small town library and came across the sort of nature and recreation and outdoors section um and found something called foxfire so the interesting thing is uh you know, history is cyclical in a lot of ways. Um, and this isn't just because there's some grand mystic uh, helices, you know, where things are always spiraling around. Um, but there's a system with feedback loops and, you know, anyone near the near reactionary uh, sector of Twitter has seen the sort of uh, good times make soft men, soft men make hard times, hard, et cetera. Um, and that sort of thing operates in a bunch of uh, ways. Um, and, you know, I, I think... Uh, there are periods in life where people feel alienated both from the political structure and from the economic structure. And this is something the left used to talk about a lot, sort of the, the Marxist or Marxian alienation. Um, and it's something that the fringe right is talking about a lot these days. Um, and this isn't new. Um, I think there was a uh, sort of World War II, everyone came home. The horrors of war. And now they just wanted a staid, peaceful suburban existence. They got it. Their kids grew up in this, and it was boring as hell. And they wanted, you know, rock concerts and LSD, um, and to go sailing or to build a uh, a log cabin. And so uh, a lot of that is documented. And this was the Back to the Land movement. And the Back to the Land movement has had some echoes. You know, sort of the permaculture organic uh, subculture has come out of that. Um, and the back of the lane movement has always been interesting because it hasn't been clearly one political side or the other. Um, it, it's been a weird fusion where you'll have, you know, sort of a left wing commune uh, just down the street from the, you know, right winger who goes out hunting. Um, And you still see that today when you got to the country. Uh, It's often fairly red, but, you know, there'll be uh, the old hippie couple with the free Tibet sign, um, which which I suppose is probably now more of a right wing talking point in the 2020s. It was a left wing talking point in the 1990s. And so anyway, uh, you know, we're we're looking at, you know, early, mid 1980s and I'm at the public library and I'm reading the Foxfire books. And I thought, gosh, someday I want to build my own house. I want to, you know, raise food and I want to learn to blacksmith. And just as sort of a, an aside, at around the same time, my now wife uh, who uh, was, you know, a thousand miles away, and she was in her public library looking at these, you know, same books, and was thinking, you know, someday I want to move to the country, marry a blacksmith, and uh, you know, raise my own food. So, um, unfortunately, we didn't meet each other when we were twenty-one. Uh, it, wasn't until her mid-30s, um, but uh, not too long after she and I met, um, you know, suddenly I've got another person pulling in the same direction uh, saying, you know, hey, this isn't insane. Yes, a farm would be cool. Uh, and then you alluded, and I'll, I'll bring in another thread, you were talking about how I speak my mind. Um, so yes, I, I've got a long history of speaking my mind, um, and in 2011, I said something somewhat spicy, and uh, then I doubled down in 2013. Uh, in fact, it wasn't intended as that spicy. Um in 2013, um, there were some Danish artists who were celebrating uh, George Orwell's uh, 100th or 110th birthday. And they celebrated by going out and noticing that, you know, hey, Orwell uh, spoke about living in a surveillance culture, surveillance society. And we live in one now. There are cameras everywhere. So they got a bunch of little party hats that you might give to kids at a you know sixth birthday party. And they put these party hats on security cameras um, all around the city court. You know, happy birthday, George Orwell. So I saw this go by and I thought that this was pretty funny. Uh, and I tweeted about it. And I said, you know, putting party cats on on cameras, that's good. Shooting cameras, that's better. And shooting the people who are in placing cameras, that's best. Um, unbeknownst to me, uh a mile or two from my house at that point, um, state police were installing security cameras, um, because this was in the wake of the Boston Marathon bombing. And I guess uh, I was already a person of interest. So the state police uh, said, you know, on the one hand, we're installing cameras. And on the other hand, this known subversive is talking about how he's going to start shooting us any minute because we're in place in cameras. Um, and so anyway, uh, that led to uh, kinetic military uh, action. <laughs> um, but uh, there was a knock on the door and uh, a big legal situation after that.
0: Right. I, be, I I believe if I read the story correctly, your whole house was basically searched and seized and you had you had guns and stuff like that taken from you. Is that right?
1: That's, that's correct. Uh, it was uh, the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Um, and uh, uh, yeah. Um, and as it turns out, um, you know, we had, in fact, broken no laws. Uh, there was no illegal guns. There are no drugs. There was, you know, absolutely nothing. And I suppose that a more sober review um, uh, showed that we we're in the right, but um, you know, I, I'm going to hop sideways and talk about Black Lives Matter and the uh, protests over police, uh, uh, you know, problems. Um, you know, I'm sympathetic to that uh, because uh, you know, I long before the uh, sort of carceral society or police overreach hit me personally. I'd been, you know, very aware from reading, you know, say Reason Magazine going back to the 1990s um, about sort of the police overreach and this praetorian culture of uh, needing an enemy. Um, and, you know, this is something you see throughout history. The state security services always need to justify their existence and they get into this sort of barracks siege mentality um, where, you know, everyone out there is a scumbag and we need to, uh, you know, eradicate the the villainy. Um, so having, uh, been sort of anti-police corruption and anti-police brutality, um, you know, I was already, uh, being paid attention to. Um, so, so anyway, uh, we've got the, um, search of the house and there's sort of no actual crimes. Um, but the, the system, uh, didn't want to let it go that easily. So there was sort of a negotiated, Okay, please don't trump up any uh, crimes. And we, of course, will get out of your hair and get out of Dodge. Um, so uh, that right. uh, helped crystallize uh, the decision to move um, out of the oh. city to the country.
0: Okay. And right. And what state was that in when that happened? That was Massachusetts. That was Massachusetts, and I believe if I recall correctly, the other comment that you got you in really hot water was a similar point you were making right the it's basically if I understand you correctly the the, the points that have really gotten you in hot water is essentially that famous uh, Jefferson quote about mm-hmm. how you know the the tree of Liberty needs to periodically be watered with the blood of tyrants right right, uh, right. so it's like it's one of those ideas that many many kind of uh good old fashioned Americans will absolutely support and cheer on in in theory right but then when it actually comes down to specific scenarios and someone like you wants to come out and say oh okay i believe the federal government has genuinely overstepped its constitutional boundaries and therefore according to you know this long-standing american wisdom that everyone respects uh Mm -hmm. therefore i hate to say it but you know and and so on and so on uh you're you're of that belief and you're willing to you're willing to basically uh carry that that logical conclusion to fruition and to, and to say it publicly in, in, in a way that uh many many people just would never
1: would never uh be comfortable saying that out loud you and, know uh, uh, maybe a little less so now there there's been a lot of interesting discussion over the last couple of years about sort of esotericism uh mm-hmm. in dangerous times and uh you know i i'm becoming a bit of a believer in esotericism um, interesting you know, during the Cultural Revolution, is that the time when you want to, uh, you know, state something that should be non-controversial, but on the other hand, you know, uh, might get you beaten to death, or uh, do you want to uh, be a little bit wiser and quieter? Um, okay,
0: that's interesting to note. So you, you've you've shifted your opinion a little bit on the on the tactics of uh, kind of radical free speech absolutism.
1: Uh yeah. So so given that you qualified, that is the tactics. Um, I, I would say, you know, sort of the tactics for me, at least, uh, I am less likely to poke the bear. Um, you know, I, I, I think that bear pokers uh, serve a absolutely useful um, role in keeping the Overton window open. Um, you know, I, I think that we need bear pokers of all stripes. We don't merely want the Overton window to be over on my side of the political uh spectrum and one inch wide. We want the Overton window to be sort of very wide along multiple dimensions, you know, X and Y and Z. Um, But that having been said, I sort of, uh, you know, I've got a fair number of scars. (laughs) Uh, Maybe I'll take it a little easy for a bit.
0: Well, it's kind of interesting that you made the connection of Black Lives Matter. And because in a weird way, there is this kind of Convergence or at least a a possible convergence i don 't know how mm-hmm. if it 's in any way materializing, but there is an interesting possible convergence between the kind of right libertarians and the anti police left at the moment mm-hmm. and you know what i 'm actually thinking of in the moment is you 've gotten in a lot of trouble for making very provocative comments about the the justification for uh anti government violence mm-hmm. and if you look at the discourses coming out right now, or even you know, think of uh, the Black Panthers, right? Think of you know, people like Huey Newton, who mm-hmm. uh, you know frequently said, uh, "We're going to shoot back. We're, we're mm-hmm. going to shoot. We're going to shoot the cops if the cops fuck with us anymore. We're going to shoot. We're going to shoot back." Mm-hmm. Said that straight up. You know what I mean? And uh, that's that has a kind of uh, absolutely acceptable, kind of fashionable, chic uh, kind of quality to it. Uh, whereas the the more like right wing kind of libertarian mm-hmm. uh, attitudes, those are kind of seen as. Uh, different in some way, but it's essentially the same, it's essentially the same, the same position. And I wonder if the black lives matter moment that we're in might actually be the basis for some sort of weird, uh, combination, uh, among the right wing libertarians and the, and the kind of radical left anti-police folks.
1: I have got a few thoughts. Um, one is, are you familiar with the concept of sort of Keegan levels of, uh, sort of morality? I'm not sure I know what Keegan levels are first. There is a psychiatrist or psychologist, uh, Keegan. And, you know, every psychologist worth his salt has to come up with his own framework for understanding things. Uh, So he did. And um, he posited sort of these different levels of morality. And there is five tiers. And at the absolute lowest tier, it's, you know, an infant. And an infant just wants what he wants immediately. The only morality is I'm hungry. And uh, then as you go up a little bit. I think it's Keegan level two or three, uh, you get, you know, my team wins. Um, So if you talk to somebody who's, you know, pro gay rights and you say, okay, so uh, on the one hand, you know, we have to respect your gay rights. But uh, conversely, shouldn't we also respect the right of, uh, you know, someone else to, um, you know, run their own store or their own marriage or something in a way that's consistent with their, say, Catholic principles? And the answer would be no. See, the difference is that my gay rights are good and correct, but those principles are bad principles. Uh, And then if you go up one more level to Keegan level four, you get sort of uh, systemic neutrality or process neutrality uh, where the thought is, you know, the way that we determine, say, the outcome of a trial is we have a process that is consistent and fair. and We have rules of evidence. And the point of the trial is not necessarily to have a philosopher king see the truth of the matter and pick the right uh, output. Uh, the purpose of the trial is to do something that is consistent and reasonable and is a process so that, you know, occasionally we will let a guilty person go and, you know, unfortunately every now and then an innocent person will be convicted. But at least we know uh, that everyone has a chance to rebut evidence that's brought before them and we're never going to allow coerced confessions, even if a coerced confession might get us closer to justice, you know, with a capital J um so anyway i bring up keegan levels just because i see a very distressing thing uh which is i think the current year politics are very keegan level three or even two not keegan level four so uh you know, a a BLM or a left of center person might say, you know, okay, so now we've got, you know, uh, blacks on the streets of America, arming themselves. I bet no one in the NRA is in favor of this. You know, I'm like, I've been posting to Usenet for, you know, 25 or 30 years. that I'm absolutely in favor of this, that, you know, rights are rights for everybody, even if I disagree with their politics. And I've been posting, you know, for the same amount of time that police abuses are wrong, whether they're against a red tribe, you know, Patriot or whether they're against a black person who, you know, is an admitted criminal, you know, I'm just trying to pick, you know, someone who's so far outside of my tribe. Uh, You know, they speak with an accent that's different from me. They live in an area that is antithetical to me. All these things, you know, still due process is important. Rights are important. The rights of the accused. Um, And so, you know, a lot of time over the decades or many times over the decades, I've tried to make common ground uh, saying, hey, you know, if we agree with a set of principles, this will be good for everyone. And the answer is, yeah, but why would I agree with a Nazi? Um, And so uh, your question was, is this a moment when left and right uh, might have a fusion on some important topics? And my gosh, I'd love it if it were so because, uh, you know, qualified immunity and police brutality and all of these things are important topics that should be important for both of the political tribes. Um, and yet we had a, a really good discussion for about twelve hours after the George Floyd incident, uh, and then it became about you know pulling down statues and denouncing anyone who's you know right of Mao as being a fascist collaborator. Uh, so unfortunately, I'm not very optimistic.
0: Right, right. So now you had said at the beginning of this conversation that when you decided to frame the Kickstarter project around the homesteading book that you're mm-hmm. working on, you decided to not frame it in a prepper. Style, mm-hmm. but as we talk about your other politics and your ideas and your and your life experiences on these fronts, mm-hmm. I, I am kind of wondering if there is, nonetheless, your does your interest
1: in homesteading have
0: a kind of prepper dimension to some
1: degree? Um, that's a fine question. Uh, so first, let me say that I, I find myself somewhat post-ideological at this point, um, just because you know the, the first time you try on an ideology, uh, it, it you know it fits you perfectly and you love it. And then eventually you find that it chafes you in one place. So you put on a different ideology and you experience that sort of rush of infatuation and first love all over again. Um, But every time you rip off the Band-Aid, it gets a little easier to rip off Band-Aids and you become a little more uh, uh, critical of flaws. So, Uh uh, I've uh, you know I've tried on a few ideologies over forty nine years. Um, you know, sort of basic bitch conservative when I was nine years old and Reagan was president, uh, and then I drifted through libertarianism into. Uh, pure and narco-capitalism. And I suppose at heart, uh, I'm still a fair bit of a narco-capitalist. I would love a society uh, where there was not initiation of force or violence against each other. And, uh, you know, the gun-toting MAGA heads could live on one side of the road and do whatever they want. And then across the street, the sort of lesbian witch commune uh, could live over there and do whatever they want. And uh, their disagreements would not be mediated through politics, um, but through sort of legal systems and the market. And, um, you know, like a lot of other disillusioned and caps, you know uh, I've realized that that's a great vision, but that is apparently not how our society as a whole is prepared to work. Um, And so, you know, I'm certainly curious, like everyone else, about, you know, some of the aspects of near reaction. And I find that interesting to poke at. um, But I don't have any worldview that can crisply be labeled with one ideology.
0: Well, I guess what I would ask to follow up then is in your model of homesteading, because I Mm look through through the book that you're launching on Kickstarter, and it's Mm -hmm. impressive. The table of contents is uh, very varied and extensive, and it's more than 200 pages you're planning. So it's going to be a real tome. Uh, You clearly have a very thought through model of what it means to do homesteading and all of the considerations involved. So I I'm, I'm guessing that with your politics and your background there has to be some aspects in in your mental model sure. of homesteading that maybe let's say are geared towards the possibility of civil unrest let's say. Are these things that you're thinking about and if so how?
1: Um sure that that's a good question and um so, I'll answer the second question second, uh but hopping back to the earliest one, which I didn't fully answer, um I would say that you know i I think that politics is always to some degree embedded uh in praxis um you know merely by the choice of what you do or don't do, where you do it um So, you know, uh, it would be a rare person who was running a a printing company that didn't have at some level a love of the printed word and of, you know, using speech as a way to convince other people, et cetera. Now. We can imagine someone like that, you know, in a left of center party or a right of center party. So there's a political aspect to it, but it's not necessarily a politics that is reductive or reducible to a single uh, bit or a single Boolean. Um, So when I was saying that I was post ideological, I stand by that um, because there's not a single ideology. But, you know, certainly I still have a worldview that's very important to me. Um, so my approach to homesteading, um, fits with my worldview and, you know, there, there's a bunch of different aspects. Uh, one is sort of a, a, a Christian stewardship of the land. Um, there's a lot of what I'm doing with the land and, you know, it's hard, sweaty work and I will probably not be the one to benefit, uh, for it. You know, I'm wiping out invasive species, you know, sort of weekend after weekend with a, a pick and a shovel, um. You know, I'm uh, pushing forests in a certain direction by selective pruning, et cetera. Um, there is other stuff that I do that uh, just sort of pushes towards a Heinleinian or a early American frontier uh, ethos of uh, uh, self-reliance. Uh, and there was a big th- um, trend on hacker news, uh, news.ycombinator.com, maybe five or 10 years ago, where people were talking about their 100 things. And it was the sort of West Coast, Silicon Valley, San Francisco Buddhist minimalism that, you know, is sort of the uh, San Francisco spirituality. And uh, simplicity and holiness was sort of expressed by how few material possessions you had. And this is an appealing uh, aesthetic. Um, but on the other hand, it's a little bit nonsense because, you know, the person who prides himself that, you know, he owns one fork and one knife uh, really owns or has access to the means of production. Um, you know, he, he doesn't own a car, but he's got an account for Uber. Uh, so does that actually make you, your life simpler in a spiritual sense or is it just uh, off book? Uh, you know, is your record keeping just sort of moving the the capital somewhere else? Um So while I appreciate the aesthetics behind simplicity, or uh, I forget the Greek philosopher who lived in an empty barrel or urn. um, Oh, Diogenes. He's one of the patron saints of my podcast. Awesome. Uh, In fact, I actually thought it was Diogenes, uh, and and I phrased it as I forget his name because I wasn't sure if I was going to mangle the pronunciation (laughs) and didn't want to look like a fool. Um, So I appreciate those aesthetics, but there's an aesthetic that I like more, uh, which is the aesthetic of, again, the Heinleinian competent man. And... You know, I, I certainly I, I probably own more individual items um, than anyone listening to this podcast right now, just because I've got a, a workshop with metalworking equipment and woodworking equipment. And I've got a barn and I've got spare parts for my tractor. Um, and so one creates this infrastructure pyramid where, you know, if, if you're in Silicon Valley and just doing the fork, the next step up is you move to the suburbs and you own a roasting pan and, uh, you know, a food processor, et cetera. Um, And then, you know, the next step is you move to a farm and because you raise your own pigs and make your own bacon, uh, you have a deli slicer and an industrial meat grinder and a cutting board and a set of butcher's knives and a meat saw and on and on and on, plus the tools to maintain those. So, Uh, But circling back, your question was, does the lifestyle embed any sort of implicit philosophical or political uh, stance? And yes, it does. It doesn't uh, embody an anarcho-capitalist or a neo-reactionary stance. It embodies uh, sort of a stance of self-sufficiency and competency and self-reliance. And I don't mean self-reliance merely at the object level of, well, obviously you rely on yourself. um, But I think that there's a very important cultural or spiritual outflow of that, which is when you start behaving that way, it alters your perceptions of things. And I think it alters them in a way that is conducive to make one a member of a well-functioning society. Uh, and just one more tangent and then I'll stop babbling. Um, You know, everyone in middle school learns about, you know, and Thomas Jefferson uh, got in this debate about the central bank and he didn't like cities. He was uh, in favor of the American yeoman farmer. And no one ever defines yeoman and everyone glosses over it. And so it's presented as Thomas Jefferson was an agrarian. He liked farmers. And it was only about three or four years ago when I looked up the word yeoman. And uh, it turns out that yeoman meant sort of self-employed or a holder, as opposed to (coughs) excuse me as opposed to an employee of someone else's and uh, you know, Justin, at this point, you're self-employed and you're doing your own thing. And so that is uh, a form and it's perhaps, you know, 95% of the form of self-reliance that I'm talking about. You might not own a tractor, but you are putting your own food uh, on your plate in a, in a very real sense, uh, just as real as if there were pigs involved. And that alters your entire outlook. You start to think much more about efficiency and what in hell am I actually trying to do and who am I trying to deliver value to and deliver value is a key thing. So um, I I think that, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson's point was American yeoman farmers, i.e. self-employed people. And I think one of the big changes in our country was not the industrial revolution as a first order effect, but as a second order effect. When people start working in factories and um, there's economies of scales, it's an inevitable outflow, that their entire relationship to production and to self-reliance and to themselves as a first-class member of society changes.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting hypothesis. And it's, it's also interesting that we return again to Jefferson. That's, again, probably not accidental, right? That there, there is something kind of in equilibrium, I think, between the, this yeoman ideal and that kind of radical free speech attitude, and the and the blood of tyrants side here, mm-hmm, right? I mean, mm-hmm, yep. there, there is a connection there, right? And Absolutely. I think you, it, it stands to reason that if we had more people living on self sufficient homesteads, we'd probably have a much more robust political culture where people spoke more freely, probably, mm-hmm. right? Because yep. uh, I think it's kind of easy and quite natural to see how those are how those are linked, right? A lot of the people that are most kind of rabidly and demonically possessed by just the the insane political fashions of the moment are often urban urban city dwellers who have some kind of institutionalized job where basically they're just highly dependent in many ways both financially and so and socially especially um and and geographically in many ways they're just kind of they're locked in these like very very dense webs of of dependence and you know there is a kind of interdependence that is healthy and good in some ways we do all rely on each other and and that's how a a a good community operates but then there are these other kind of morbid and very, very undesirable forms of interdependence or codependence. And I think a lot of the kind of political uh, morbidity that is, that is going on in the cities is due to this weird kind of lo- just lack of independence, both mental and spiritual and financial. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, I'm just trying to draw these connections out for people. It's not, it's not for nothing that, uh, you Travis happen to be a kind of, uh, free speech firebrand who's gotten in hot water for saying what a lot of people would see as uh, outrageous and dangerous things. And you're also killing it in self-publishing. And you're also uh, on the forefront of figuring out how to do homesteads and now teaching other people to do that also. So yeah. And then the fact that we're kind of circling around Jefferson is, is that something also worth reflecting on because we're we're what we're really facing here is that this is essentially a kind of aspect of American culture the this convergence of these themes is is a very deeply American thing and you know America's I don't know it's kind of unfashionable to be pro-America and I'm not like a, I'm not big on nationalism at all I'm not big on like any of that stuff personally but I do think America is pretty unique and pretty cool <laughs>
1: Um, I agree with all of that. And I think you really, really put your finger on my thesis or that I was trying to elucidate. So congratulations. Uh nice. you did a wonderful job of teasing the meat out. Uh when you were saying that this web of interdependence, I mean, <clears throat> people can be canceled when they're dependent. Um, you know, uh, so you've got your inputs, and when someone else controls your inputs, you know, you're effectively a slave. And then this ties over to sort of the Marxist idea of a wage slave. Um, and uh, you know, I, I've got a friend who's a Marxist. Um, And I was at a corporate retreat with him once. uh, And this is how we became friends. I thought, oh, the strange Marxist. And then it turns out that we'd read several books in common. And, you know, I knew a couple of uh, Karl Marx quotes that I liked. uh, And suddenly (laughs) you were like, brother. Uh, But this also ties into the whole police abuses thing. That the police, uh, individual police officers are as embedded in a web of dependency as Mm -hmm. any of Because they're absolutely cancelable and that they need the organization and the microculture around them for two different things. One is physical safety, and two is for their pensions. Um, personally, I think that if there a very minor reform that we could do is to make it illegal for police to have pensions and require that they have defined contribution uh, retirement plans like 401ks. Because, you know, the problem is if you're an officer, if you try to speak up against corruption or speak up against the brass, you can get thrown out before your 20th year and, you know, they're holding the pension over your head.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I'm not sure that I've heard that, but that's an interesting possibility. Have you ever uh, read the old internet classic kind of in in the niche we're roughly talking about the uh, early retirement extreme? Do you know this book?
1: It sounds familiar. Is is this some sort of uh, disrupting retirement by doing it super fast and super early?
0: Um, no, it's it's more, if I recall, I did read it uh, a exactly. few years back when it was recommended to me, but uh, it's it very much has this kind of ethos, this kind of ethos that you were describing of mm-hmm. uh, the complete man or the competent man. Mm-hmm. Um, if I recall correctly, the thesis of that book, I forget the guy's name, but it is a pretty cool book. And the mm-hmm. guy is, pre- you know, he's, he's preaching what he practices. So he's legit in that regard, if I recall correctly. Um. But he goes for a, a a I think a much more minimalist kind of mm. uh, how how to retire really mm-hmm. early, and if I recall correctly, like very very cheaply and minimalistically.
1: Right. I, so I, I know yeah. there's one guy, Mister Mustard or something, uh, who's on the internet. And he oh,
0: Mister, I think the mustache guy. <laughs> no,
1: that's probably yeah. It. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a different model.
0: Basically, okay. uh, there are all these different niches where people are basically trying to model how to do this type of thing mm-hmm. in one way or another. Th- these are all very different projects, but mm-hmm. uh, there's definitely a huge amount of interest and energy in, yeah, basically creative models that are reproducible mm-hmm. for getting the fuck out of the like urban uh, pathological rat race, basically. Right, right. So so let's talk a little bit more about your model then. So sure. in um, you decided to settle your homestead in New Hampshire. And I think right. this is an interesting discussion to be had because right now I know for a fact, there are a lot of people Who maybe they make decent money doing, you know, software engineering or whatever the case might be. Now all of a sudden they're full time remote. A bunch of the big tech companies just announced Mm -hmm. they're going full time remote. So there are people currently living in expensive cities. They're not happy and they have Mm -hmm. a nice paycheck. It's going to stay consistent and they can work anywhere they want. So I'm, there is right now a kind of unspoken mad scramble for people to figure out where is the best place to go. Right. Uh, right. And I, I know this in part because I recently published a blog post that actually, um, I think it got traction on Hacker News uh, and that's why it, it got a lot of uh, traffic and I got a lot of inbound from that blog post. And it was basically me laying out my own two cents on how I'm thinking about it at the moment. Because mm-hmm. I'm basically kind of in this camp, uh, although I don't make terribly great money yet, I make enough that I could I could make moves. And we're planning to make some kind of move. Nice. Uh, but we don't know where yet. So I kind of just wrote out this blog post, laying out how I think about it. And some some of my kind of creative, clever ideas for how maybe people could cooperate to do something cooperatively, um, mm-hmm. from out of the blue from just internet relationships. And uh, so pe- this is a hot question. People are super interested in this. You obviously did a lot of research. And you had to make this decision for yourself. It sounds Mm -hmm. like you decided that New Hampshire seems to be uh, perhaps an optimal place.
1: I'd love to hear the case for why people might consider moving to New Hampshire. Um, You know, uh, and and I'll say it worked for me. Um, There are other people who might find Tennessee or Texas or Alaska. Um, But uh, so when my wife and I were trying to decide where we're going to relocate to, we knew that we wanted land and not just two or three acres, but sort of bare minimum of 15 and, you know, 200 acres if we could find it we wanted a sort of social environment that was compatible with the kind of liberty that we wanted. Um, and so, uh, we made a list of, I think, Idaho, maybe Wyoming, Alaska, New Hampshire, and a few other places. And, um, you know, uh, we we're both uh, in our forties. So that means that our parents are in their, our seventies. So we wanted places where we could, you know, get to an airport and fly there in one hop or two hop, not necessarily three or four. Um, Wanted to be a, at a place where hospitals were within 30 or 45 minutes, not two or three hours. Um, <clears throat> wanted to be in a place where the weather was cooperative. Um, you know, I wouldn't consider myself a a, a doomsday prepper or anything, um, but I suppose I do follow the sort of Gaussian model for the sort of bad things that are likely to happen in your life. So, you know, if we just take a quick digression there. Everyone listening to this is going to get laid off once or twice or four times over the career. So that's guaranteed. That's a once every five or six years kind of thing. Um, there is going to be a recession every eight, you know, 10 years. There's going to be a Great Depression every 60 or 70 or 80. Uh, you know, the United States has a civil war, you know, once every 150 years, 1776, 1861. <clears throat> uh, you can do the math on that. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, there, you know, we get in a world war every, you know, uh, 150 or 200 years. um, There's a plague every so often. So I do not see the Mad Max scenario where, you know, the cities are nuked and the population is cut by 95%, et cetera, as very likely. It's it's not zero. It probably happens once every thousand years to uh, a civilization. Um, So before I jumped to what solution I wanted, I just sort of thought about threat models. And <clears throat> oh, sorry, I'm coughing more and more because I'm talking so much, but I looked at threat models and the absolute uh, most important threat model is you're going to get laid off and there's going to be a recession. So the first thing to think about is finances. And so you don't want to extremely leverage yourself to get 500 acres plus a bunker, plus this and that. Uh, you want to be anti-fragile and robust in a personal finance sense. Um and so anyway, just working through these threat models and a basic historic understanding of how often these things happen. And these happen in civilized countries, right? I mean, Europe itself uh, suffered through World War II. Um, and people in Russia suffered through the end of the Soviet Union when suddenly their pensions uh, you know, were devalued. And you had to go out to your grandmother's dacha and grow potatoes there to get through the winter. So anyway, <clears throat> making this list and rank ordering the states. And then looking at uh, the individual tax codes, because you know the one thing that's going to hit for sure every single year is taxes at the state level, and New Hampshire has no income tax, uh, so that worked well for us. <clears throat> and then finally, putting that together with <clears throat> access to a major city, which is you know something I don't need to get into too often, uh, but you can imagine that if you're trying to do a startup and you need to meet with people that they'll fly into Boston and you meet them at the airport, that's a possible scenario. So putting all of those things together, Southern New Hampshire made a lot of sense for us. Uh, you know, it was either A or A minus on every single criteria. Interesting. That's cool. And did you consider the whole country or were you constrained in any way? <clears throat> we were constrained uh, sort of culturally and by climate. Neither my wife nor I is a big fan of warm temperatures. So that's why we're looking at sort of the northern tier. Um, I've got a lot of friends who are big fans of Tennessee and of Texas. Um, I also didn't want to get too deep into uh, red states. Um, You know, it's very easy to live in a blue state like I did in Massachusetts and be hyper aware of the limitations and the abuses of blue states. Um, But, you know, I I would caution anyone on either side of the political spectrum to don't think that your own side is incapable of excesses. It absolutely is. Mm. And so being in sort of a purplish state that was low taxes uh, struck me as good. We're not going to get the insane, over the top prosecutors that you sometimes see in Texas. We're not going to get the sort of insane, over the top, politically correct prosecutors that you might get in New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts. Hmm. Um, so I think there's a lot to be said for sort of uh, dynamic stability as opposed to true stability.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting take. And New Hampshire and Vermont, they do have that weird kind of politics where there's mm-hmm. there's actually there's a good amount of far right people and far left people. Mm-hmm. Is that right? So yeah. you 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 suppose it has a kind of balancing effect. That's my belief,
1: um, you know, that sort of each side has its own sort of Gaussian distribution. And uh, to some degree, they cancel each other out or there's interference patterns or something, you know, pick whatever analogy you want.
0: Right. I know a lot of people who are trying to find some sort of exodus from from California, whether it be mm-hmm. the Bay Area or wherever, a lot <coughs> of those people are naturally looking at places in the West. Right. I'm just kind of curious. And actually, I'm in Albuquerque at the moment, so my wife mm-hmm. and I are currently considering places in the west but mm-hmm. mostly just out of geographical proximity at the moment so we're going to mm-hmm. check some places out i was just curious if you ha- do you have a read on the west and kind of optimal choices or
1: yeah or no, that's otherwise? A question um you know we looked at that a little bit uh we looked at idaho um one thing i've uh seen as a dynamic in the west is that there are so many people fleeing california and there is unfortunately this pattern <laughs> <laughs> where people are in California, they sort of vote for high taxes, high regulation, and they see that job, st- uh, job growth gets a bit strangled. And then at least the stereotype goes, and I don't have hard data, so I, I don't want to say this is a fact, uh, but the stereotype goes that these people relocate to adjoining states uh, and then vote for the very same policies that <laughs> you know, they dislike the results of perhaps being uh, unclear on the connection between you know right. policy A and result B. So I, um, With that in mind, uh, I personally wouldn't be as interested in sort of nearby obvious California uh, exodus states because I Mm. think that's where the rest of the California exodus is going.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting cake. Are you observing in your areas? Is there an exodus from New York and Boston? And are you feeling that? Um,
1: so, you know, I've had a lot of people, uh, sort of griefers, I guess, on Twitter say, oh, you're in New Hampshire, haha, ha, it's all going to be taken over by, you know, Massachusetts high, high tax types, uh, because, you know, it voted for, you know, such and such blue politician. And there's an actually interesting, uh, thing. If you look at the county by county returns in New Hampshire, <clears throat> the most consistently red counties and towns are the ones right along the Massachusetts border because there's been the sort of osmotic diffusion uh, or, you know, forced osmosis where a certain demographic in Massachusetts that dislikes the ruling uh, ideology there will relocate as close as they can while still across the border for lower taxes, et cetera. So... Uh, the short answer is, you know, I, I do not see New Hampshire swinging decisively blue, high tax, high regulation. I think it's going to continue a middle of the road uh, approach. You know, the country as a whole is an interesting question. Uh, you know, the, the country as a whole has its center of gravity and everyone gets dragged along with that. Um, I do think that we're already in the last month or two or three starting to uh, see an increase in um, uh, urban exit. Um, I You know, once you've got two dogs, you can't go on petfinder.com anymore uh, because you don't need any more pets. And once you're married, you can't go on the dating websites uh, because that's not allowed. But if you like window shopping, what is it that you're allowed to click, you know, once a week and then see what's new? And so I find myself on Zillow and realtor.com window shopping all the time. And uh, I think that I have seen in the Southern New Hampshire area, uh, a increase in prices and in sort of market speed. So uh, it could be that I'm misperceiving it. It could be that it's a statistical anomaly, or it could be that uh, we're already starting to see an exodus because of 2020 is so insane. Yeah, I think it's absolutely possible because I'm also
0: looking at a lot of things right now pretty actively, looking at Zillow, looking at places like that. Uh, in fact, my wife has already started calling calling around, like kind of looking at leads on, craigslist or zillow because we're we're basically hitting the road like within a few weeks and uh yeah we don't have that much stuff we're just putting it all in a car and uh we're heading north from albuquerque just explore meet some people from the internet and uh but but we are looking basically for somewhere to rent in the short term Mm -hmm. but as an as an exploration or scouting mission for where we want to settle and uh i don't have like a lifestyle model quite like fully developed or decided uh, but basically I'm just kind of scouting for like general areas that seem to be like a good place to invest in and bu- potentially like build a family soon. Um, and my, my folks are actually on the East coast, so we could go anywhere. And, you know, so I'm quite open to the, to, to New Hampshire and places well, like that. I, I all, hope but... you
1: swing through New England, cause uh, I'll definitely have you over to the farm and give you a farm lunch. And, uh, well this is actually later
0: something later. I wanted to ask you about next. Um, and by the way, I, I know we're going for about an hour. Do you have a little bit time, a little time uh, for uh, a, few, yeah. a few more? Uh, okay, okay cool. cool. Um, so what is your, what is the scene like? What is your kind of lifestyle like on a daily basis? Cause I think a lot of, what a lot of people might be thinking is, oh gosh, if I left the city and I, and I had some kind of homestead, I would just go mad from lack of social life, lack of events and, and cultural phenomena to, yeah. to kind of stay entertained and, and stimulated with. So, uh, it, I know from Jeremy, uh, the founder of library, he said he's, he hangs out in the area and apparently there's a bit of a kind of scene of interesting, weird schemers and, uh. Yeah. Kind of, kind of people, failures. people looking uh, for exit. So tell me about that. I would love to hear about that. Sure. Um,
1: so uh, you know, I live near Manchester, New Hampshire, um, and you know, if you're from New York or LA, the idea that Manchester would build itself a city uh, is laughable. Um, and you know, yet it's a New Hampshire city. Uh, so you know, it's got everything that normal cities have. It's got you know restaurants and uh, you know microbrewers and coffee shops and bookstores. Um, and when I go on uh, meetup.com looking for stuff, there's always stuff going on, whether it's, you know, meditation groups or politics or, you know, tabletop wargaming, which is something I'd love to make some time for. Um, so, you know, my own particular lifestyle is... Uh, Maybe not the absolute best example for someone who's asking, what's the cool stuff going on? Um, Because, you know, first of all, everyone when they're married uh, slows down and everyone when they're in their 40s slows down. And uh, my wife and I both have tons of hands on hobbies um, and we've got all the space and all of the tools to do it. So, uh, you know, for a 20 something in the city, their idea of the perfect Saturday might be, you know, wandering from this event to that event, to the concert, to et cetera. Right. And, you know, my typical Saturday is, you know, something like eight hours of, uh, you know, uh, fixing the tractor and installing fences. Um, And you like it. I do like it. I really like it. Um, And, you know, one thing that I intend to write on the book is that, you know, I've been sort of, you know, in and out of the gym uh, over my adult life and uh, I was last in the gym probably just before I moved uh, to New Hampshire. And so, you know, as a uh, sort of uh, OCD, borderline autistic uh, engineer type, I've got logs. Everything's documented. It's uh, like Lord Kelvin would approve. It has been reduced to numbers and measured. And I got back into the gym uh, about two years ago. And after a month or two of it, I thought, you know, oh, I should see how far I've fallen from seven years ago when I was a regular gym goer. And what I realized was that Despite being away from the gym for seven years, just doing work around the farm, you know, all of my lifts were up, you know, 10 or 20%. Um, So I do enjoy uh, living on a homestead because it is sort of physically gratifying. And this ties into the sort of alienation from the environment or alienation from labor. There is a complaint that you see all the time on Twitter, which is, you know, oh, God, I'm just in this cube. I'm I'm typing XML or database lookups or whatever all day long for fun. I go home and I read esoteric blog posts by Slate Star Codex or Moldbug (laughs) or something. And this is all wonderful. My mind is stimulated, um, but I'm an urban bug man. And, uh, you know, and I think that, you know, we evolved in the natural world and our muscles evolved with the expectation that they would get used, you know, 30 or 40 or 90 hours a week um, and on and on and on. So there is sort of a deep physical satisfaction of just getting out and doing labor. Uh, So, you know, it's Friday evening. So tomorrow I've got a list of things I'm going to be doing. Um, And, you know, one of them is weeding my corn patch. Another is digging up some invasive knotweed. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be welding up some shelves for my workshop. And it's fun stuff and I enjoy it. All right. Wow. And
0: so, yeah, you're at a point in your life where you don't really care much about, you know, going into the city and uh, doing cultural events. You like working hard with your, I, with your family and and that's all you need to, for a happy life.
1: Yeah. You know, th- th- I, if there were 26 hours in the day instead of 24, I'd probably, uh, you know, find a tabletop uh, gaming group and, you know, indulge in some of nerd hobbies. Um, right. And that stuff is around. You know, I go on meetup.com and I see the stuff that I'm interested in doing. Uh, but then principle of revealed preference.
0: Now, are you familiar with though? I'm just kind of curious are are there other kind of interesting experiments and in people like you and other types of uh, people in the area? Is there is there a scene there? Could you tell us a little bit about that? That
1: Um, So, you know, I wouldn't necessarily consider myself a member of the Free State Project, um, but, you know, I'm Free State Project adjacent. I know a bunch of people and uh, there are a lot of wacky, cool people. You know, (laughs) um, I know a sort of left libertarian who's building a hacker space, you know, out in the boonies Um,
0: near uh, Manchester.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's cool. It is. Uh, you know, I've got other friends who were involved in HEMA, which is historical European martial arts. So they dress up in armor and swing swords, not, not padded swords, steel swords. They goddamn hit each other in the head with swords. Um, and, uh, you know, I know a bunch of other homesteading types and, uh, the homesteaders often, you know, have get togethers and potlucks, um, and uh, actually, Jeremy Kaufman, who you mentioned, uh, I've had the pleasure of having lunch with him a couple of times, and he's a fascinating guy, and I love his startup. Um, Libri.io. I, I always mispronounce that, just like Diogenes. So, um, oh, how so does yeah, he pronounce they, it? Uh, how do I pronounce his startup? How does he pronounce it? I thought it was just a library. You know, I probably shouldn't have said anything. <laughs> <laughs> I, could
0: be, I could be wrong, though. I, what do I know? Um,
1: we'll get okay, cool. There. Yeah, yeah, cool. So, anyway, well, uh, there certainly is a... Uh, you know, I don't know if you want to call it a scene or just sort of a uh, resting vapor pressure of interesting weirdos around. Um, and uh, to some degree, I try to create my own magic by, you know, having uh, gatherings at my farm and I'll, you know, invite my friends and get a good old crowd here. So, uh, you know, I, I would say to city people, um, it's probably less trivial to walk into an instant scene. I mean, you know, if someone moves from New York City to Seattle uh, and whatever it is they're interested in, whether it's, you know, micro brewing or punk rock or whatever, you know, that scene is going on their first night there. They just need to find out where it is. And it takes a little more work in the boonies. Uh, search costs are higher, as an economist might say.
0: Yeah, no, that's cool, though. I, you're definitely putting Manchester on the map of possible op- options for me. I'll, I'm going to look into it for sure. Cool. Interesting. So I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I feel like maybe one or two more questions just Absolutely. on this front, because I think there are so many people interested in this right now. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, one question i I kind of curious is if, obviously, your book is going to be pitched to a fairly broad audience. And as I said, it's got a a massive table of contents. You're you're really aiming to do a comprehensive guide to, to moving from the city to homesteading. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm, I'm curious maybe for people more like me specifically uh, in particular, you know, engineers or scientists or um, my type of person who's kind of thinking about defecting from, you know, the city or institutions as a whole, I'm kind of curious, are there any particular, I don't know, bits of advice or tips or tricks or things to watch out for that you might send out specifically to other types of people who are kind of more analytical engineering professional types of people? Like what, what is the engineering professional kind of most likely to um, not get right? Or what, what what are they,
1: what's the most important for them to understand? Right. Uh, Good question. Um, I'll, I'll back up and say, you know, I do sort of the uh most hardcore full-on version of homesteading. And I've got a friend uh who is very security conscious, so unfortunately I can't even use his name lest I I risk him yelling at me. Uh but he's in exactly the same boat I am. Uh, you know, sort of pure white collar, no history of this from the city. And um, you know, uh he raises cattle and he has some, you know, ultra heavy machinery, front-end loaders and excavators and everything. Um uh, and you know, I, I do similar things. I don't have the equipment, but I do my own butchering and I, you know, I slaughter my pigs and make my own bacon, et cetera. So if you look at us, we're, you know, sort of the two with the knobs turned to 11. Uh, but there's a lot of other people, you know, sort of from a similar scene and from a similar background or demographic who don't have the knob turned to 11. They turn it to six or seven, et cetera. So, uh, that's one thing I'm trying to be cognizant of in the book that I don't want to make this so that is only if you're, you know, going to go an insane off grid prepping race, all of your own food, Mm. you can turn the knob anywhere you want. And if you decide that you want a small garden, you know, read halfway through the book. If you want a big garden, read through quarters of the way. And, you know, if you don't want to butcher or slaughter a pig, you don't need to read those chapters. Um, but the rest of it is relevant and there's a lot of relevant small stuff, um, you know, as a city dweller, you've got some sort of preconceptions. It's sort of, uh, as Rumsfeld said, the unknown unknowns and that you've probably never thought about, you know, how does garbage collection work in the country? And the answer is there is no garbage truck. Um, you either uh, have a truck so that you can put your garbage in the back and bring it to the town dump or you pay for a service to come and get it. And how does water work? Um, How does internet work? And again, as a city dweller, you're not going to stop and think before I move into this new apartment, can I get internet there? Whereas a country person, that's something you need to be aware of. So, um, you know, I'd say that's probably where I bring the most value in what I'm trying to do. Uh, uh, There's a woman on the internet, I forget her real name, but she goes by uh, literal banana on Twitter. And uh, she... Yes. Uh, She uh, reposted a meme recently, which was sort of a a curve of your knowledge. And um, at first, you know nothing about a problem domain, and then you know a bunch and you realize what you know. And then eventually you sort of forget that your knowledge is anything interesting because it just seems like background information that everyone knows. And the perfect time to write down what you know is when the knowledge is there, but it's still fresh. And so uh, that's what I'm striving to do in this. Um, and I can already start to feel some of the stuff start to feel obvious. Like, you know, well, everyone knows the kinds of three point hitches on a tractor. I don't need to cover (laughs) that boring topic. Um, so, I don't know what the absolute specific gotchas would be for our demographic um, that would grab any person. But having been, you know, stepped or having stepped in about 70 or 80 of these different bear traps myself, I know that there's a lot of them. Um, And I'm trying to write the book while the sort of unknown unknowns are all fresh in my mind as dangers. Um, and, but yeah, so some of those are right there. I would say, uh, just sort of thinking about utilities and giving an overview of how does one go about heating one's house? How does, uh, you know, one get garbage taken away. And, uh, there's also information about sort of, uh, getting along with neighbors. Uh, not that I've done a perfect job on that, but I've tried really hard. Um, and, wow, uh, how have you pissed off the neighbors? Uh, um, I pissed off one neighbor by walking my own property. Um, Uh, uh, I was just walking along the property line, which is in dense forest. And uh, he started yelling from his yard that I'd better not be on his land because he doesn't tolerate trespassers and blah, blah, blah. So uh, we had a little interesting conversation and I assured him that I was not on his land and then paused and said, but by the way, I see this deer hunting stand here. Is this yours? The one on my land? And he said, well, that's been there for a while. So, uh, uh, And then there's more with that. His cow got loose, and uh, he penned it in in one of my pastures. Um, and do you hunt for your food? I have climbed up in a tree with a gun, <laughs> and I have seen deer, but I have never had both happen at the same time. Are so, you
0: planning um, to, or are you trying to? Uh,
1: I have. Um, uh, it, it hasn't been a priority the last couple of years, just because there's so much other stuff. Um, but I have my own tree stand, um, and I've got my orange jacket. Uh, and at this point having, uh, uh, processed much larger animals like cows and pigs, a hundred or 150 pound deer would be a quite tractable. Um, but, uh, so no, I, I, I mostly, I get my meat from animals that I raise, um, but I am interested in hunting and I hope to have success in the future.
0: Oh, cool. Okay. Now, I mean, I'm sure for a a brainy professional coming from the city, there are going to be a bunch of things you don't expect and you don't know, and it kind of bites you in the ass and you Mm -hmm. figure out as you go. But on the other hand, I also have to imagine like if you're smart enough to do software engineering, you're probably going to be able to figure this out, right? Like,
1: you know, I I think I'm proof of that. I did figure it out. Uh, You know, I grew up in the suburbs um, and, uh, you know, this was an adventure. And so a lot of people are somewhat disbelieving of that. I'll, you know, post on Twitter pictures of, you know, a uh, processing a 500 pound hog and making head cheese uh, or something. And they'll say, you know, where did you learn that? I'm like, you know, books and trial and error. Um, So, you know, that's, uh, a- anyone could do this on their own with their own trial and error. And Tom, uh, wasn't, it wasn't Jefferson for once. It was Ben Franklin who had the quote, uh, experience is a dear teacher, but only a fool learns it no other. Uh, so anyway, I was the fool and now I'm selling a book so that you guys yeah. don't have to be.
0: Right on, right on. And I think probably the, the very final question would just be, we should talk a little bit about money and the finances that are required mm-hmm. to kind of pull this off, right? Because absolutely, uh, something we alluded to before is, there are many people who have hacked this type of thing in a different in different ways, right? There's there's different takes on this. You can do kind of high income, high wealth version of this. You can do this uh, kind of bootstrapped and very very cheap. There are different ways of thinking about it. Uh, so I'm curious, just from your perspective, for people who are listening to this, uh, maybe they kind of identify with you or me or or in some ways their their lives kind of sound like what we're talking about. Uh, but they're maybe wondering okay, well, how much savings do I really need to pull this off? Right. How much monthly income do I really need to pull this off and to grow it? You know, so I wonder, if could you give us a few pointers or heuristics?
1: And, and yeah. this is sort of an aspect of it that I'm most interested in. This is cool. something I go into pretty good depth in the book on. Um, and and one sub aspect I go into is, you know, hey, you're just out of college. You've got no resources. You're maybe not in a position to negotiate remote work. What is a five-year or 10-year plan to get you ready for this when you're 28 or 32 or whatever? Um But as I go through each of the processes, I sort of talk, you know, here's the uh, low capital way to do it, the medium capital and the high capital. Um, So in my particular case, we talked earlier about how I very politically outspoken and how that's had legal repercussions. um, And that uh, was a one-two punch because the crash of 2008 um, also torpedoed my startup. Um, And I, you know, stupidly tried to keep it alive uh, for another four or five years. Uh, sort of laying off the staff and just doubling my hours. Um, And so the way that ended up playing out was around the time of the whole sort of free speech issue um, was also forced to acknowledge, you know, there's no money here. Um, I'm paying myself sort of, you know, minimum wage or less. Just shut it down. Uh, Time to declare bankruptcy. Um, And So, you know, I was, uh, coming from a pretty bad place, financially speaking, when I moved to, uh, the homestead seven years ago, I was, you know, that was something like literally 30 days after declaring bankruptcy and having the bankruptcy finalized, um, it was having lawyer bills. It was having all of these things, but that having been said, because I had a trade and a trade I'd been pursuing for 20 years, I was pretty good at my job and could earn decent money. And I decided that, um, and and this ties into the sort of, uh, um, power law distribution of prepping scenarios. We're probably not going to see a collapse of civilization. We're absolutely going to see other things, uh, you know, like recessions. And I realized, you know, I have been in the survival situation of being deeply in debt and, uh, with not enough income. So my first priority is to work really, really hard and make sure that I'm never in that situation again. So for the first four or five years, I worked two jobs, uh, sort of my Monday through Friday, and then also a weekend or after hours, you know, uh, 15 or 20 hours a week. And I did that so that I could, you know, go from bankruptcy to having paid off my entire farm in a few years. And anyone in the demographic that, you know, you're a member of, and I'm a member of, and that we're speaking here, this is something that you can do, because uh, real estate is a lot cheaper out in the country than it is in the city. and you know you can get a pretty nice house for you know two hundred thousand dollars or something. And so you know when people are coming out of college and going into Silicon Valley and making one hundred and sixty their first year, or even if they're not so lucky as to be coders, you know they're something else. But you know white collar and making decent money. Uh, you can have a pretty good quality of life because the baseline cost of living mortgage payment is so low. So um, that's, you know, I'd say the very first thought of daydreaming about this is go on realtor.com, look at a map, pick some place that's, you know, uh, 45 miles outside of Manchester or outside of Spokane or out the boonies and just look how cheap things are. Um, And having done that, you could, you know, then play with a spreadsheet and realize, you know, gosh, maybe in three or four or five years, I could pay this off. Um, and for quality of life, uh, knowing that you are uncancelable, that you could, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what blog post they dig up or, you know, uh, something you posted over your 300 baud modem in 1986, um, that, you know, you said that bad people are bad, even though that's controversial. Uh, so that would be my first thought of look for sort of minimum sustainable ways. Um, and, uh, I, I suppose I could talk about homemade bacon. I could talk about everyone else is in lockdown during the city and I get to go out and take a mile long walk without leaving my property. That's all good. But one of the best things is just the knowledge that you don't owe a single penny to anyone else in the world. That's an amazing feeling. And that's achievable when you escape the city and move out to the country.
0: Right on. Right on. Well, very interesting talk. Thank And thank you for sharing a lot of your knowledge and experience, both when it comes to self-publishing hustle and also the, uh, homestead hustle. So yeah, you've, you've, you've done a lot of interesting things in your time and thank you for sharing some of the lessons. And, uh, yeah, once again, uh, big congratulations on the hugely successful Kickstarter campaign Although for anyone out there listening to this or watching this, uh, it is still open. So if you want to support Travis and what he's doing and get the book, you can do that. There's a link to the Kickstarter in the, in the description or the show notes. And, uh, yeah, I just want to basically thank you for your time. Cool. you're a really, you're a really interesting dude, Travis. And uh, you're, you clearly, do, uh, you're, you. clearly, you're clearly a kind of ungovernably independent mind and, <laughs> uh, and, and you, you do what you want and you figure it out. And uh, I really appreciate that about people. And yeah, thanks for making some time to talk with me and my audience and for sharing, you know, the wisdom you've collected along the way. I can think of no higher
1: compliment than calling me an ungovernable mind. Thank you very much. <laughs> Justin. It was a pleasure.
0: Hey, everybody, thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe, and it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.